Being crazy is a compliment. When somebody says you're crazy, that means you see things that other people can't see. Welcome to the best of the third quarter of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Today, we'll be looking back at some of the most impactful conversations over the past several months. Buckle up, it's gonna be a wild ride. Everybody that's done something special in life, they've all been criticized for being crazy. It's a compliment. When somebody says, you're crazy, you're nuts, I said, yes, I am. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at some of the most thought-provoking moments from our podcast guests, which include attorneys, best-selling authors, and even elite athletes. From the mindset required to perform under pressure to the sacrifices necessary to win at the highest level, this jam-packed episode has it all. Eliminate any type of excuse or entitlement, and you show up and do the work. Like, that's seriously as simple as it can get. Everybody needs to stand up, look themselves in the mirror, and go, okay, I'm in this position in my life because of me. I need to take full accountability for where I am. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. To kick things off, we're revisiting our conversation with the founder and CEO of America's largest injury law firm, John Morgan, recorded live at the Evolve Virtual Summit. John believes that hunger, the insatiable desire to win, can't be taught. You're born with it. One of my favorite moments from our conversation was when John described how he's able to gauge whether or not somebody has that hunger. I've always been fascinated with paper boys. And I'll tell you why I've been fascinated with paper boys. Paper boys are 10, 11, 12 years. They don't even have paper boys anymore. But you're 10, 11 years old. And you're tied to this job every day. Rain, sleet, snow, grouchy customers, bad customers, but you do it every single day. Those paper boys, I believe, are lions. They have that internal it. Warren Buffett was a paper boy. Oprah Winfrey was a paper girl. When I meet people, especially my age, I'll say, can I ask you a question? I say, what? I say, were you a paper boy? Were you a paper girl? And when they tell me they were, it's like my own little Briggs-Meyer personality test. I know who I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with a lion or not. And so that is the internal thing. And it's just as lucky as being Shaquille O'Neal and being seven foot two and run like a gazelle. And I imagine it's probably going to lead to a very frustrating, difficult life if you're not that person, but you try to be. If the sloth tries to be the lion, right? But here's the great thing. There's also another animal, and they're mules. There's the hardworking mule, and there's the lazy mule. The hardworking mule, you put that hat up on the ears, and the ears stick out, the daisies, and that mule can plow all day long. 
And then you got another mule who's built the same way, but won't do anything. The one secret that I have found, it's not brains, it's the willingness to work. Nobody that I know that's very successful has not been a hard worker. And so if you think you're missing something, put the time in. When I look around my firm and around the offices in America, when I look at the most successful people, they're the people in the office. They're the people trying the cases. They're the people working on the weekends. The common denominator for the most successful people that I know in my life is not that they were the smartest, is they were the hardest working. So you can actually work yourself to where you want to be, even if you're a mule, because mules can work for 10 hours. And at the end of the day, there's this beautiful field that produces a whole bunch of vegetables. I remember in that you can't teach hunger. You talk about there's some that go, you know, coming out of the weekend, they come back as satiable slugs. And then there's others that are just constantly insatiable. You ask them, when are you done? They're not done. When is it enough? It's never enough. There's two types of people. And, and here's the problem inside of our firms. Inside of all of our firms, you have you, and then you have the people inside of your firm. You have one business objective. The people working with you or for you have another objective. Now, their objective may not be what your objective is. Their objective may be, I got to work this hard, get this much, and then I want quality of life. And almost everybody has a limit of satiability. If I get that, I'm done. Most people, I'd say 95% or more, have a satiable appetite. But then there's that rare bird that has an insatiable appetite. And no matter what they have, they want more. And it's not about money because you can only eat one cheeseburger and drink one Maker's Mark. Your pockets are bulging, but you can't eat more than one cheeseburger and one Maker's Mark. It's about winning. It's about succeeding. It's about being respected. And so what I'm always looking for inside of all of my organizations are those people who have that insatiable appetite that they're never going to stop because they want to be successful, respected, and revered. You had an early job, I think, as uh, Pluto, right? At, at Disney World. Could you imagine that? The magic at Disney. I was Pluto at Disney. I loved Disney. I loved Walt Disney. I met Roy Disney one night when I was doing magic at Merlin's. He came in and I said, where do you stay when you come here? And he points out, I was at Merlin's magic store. And he points out of the castle and he says, I stay there. I go, where? He goes, Walt built us an apartment there. I said, Mr. Disney, I can't believe I'm meeting you. He says, John, don't call me. Mr. Disney, call me Roy. I said, why? He goes, call me Roy. And I decided that night at Merlin's Magic Shop, if I ever had a business, nobody would ever call me Mr. Morgan. Everybody called me Don. So anytime anybody tries to call me John or Mr. Morgan, no go. It's if, if Walt Disney can be Walt, I can be John. And I loved working at Disney. The best thing about it, like when I was Pluto and I'd be standing at Main Gate, tram, the, the monorails come in at the beginning of the day and you look up and here comes grown men in sandals, running, full tilt, 
you know, knocking kids down to come take a picture with Pluto and Mickey. The, and the first day we had the VIP unit out there. All day long, you're working with people who are having the single best day of their entire life. They've come to Disney World. So I loved that. And so I was inspired by uh, my Walt Disney and my time at Disney World. So you mentioned Roy Disney. So Walt, the visionary, he had Roy. Do you have a Roy? I have a Roy. My wife is very smart. I kind of consider her my Roy. The only thing that she has not understood yet is she thinks she has an absolute veto on everything. And so our fights come from, I'm looking for advice. I'm not looking for a veto. So whenever we clash, but I rely on her. And, and yeah, look, if you read a book a long time ago called The Millionaire Next Door, it takes two guys that make the same amount of money, but to the end of their life, one has a lot of money and one doesn't have a lot of money. The one thing you find about the people who have a lot of money, rule number one, stay married. When you start cutting shit in half, you, you, lose, you, lose, you lose half. The millionaire next door always relied on professionals, CPAs and lawyers. And even though we're lawyers, we're not that kind of lawyer. So I rely heavily. So I got a whole team of Roy's around me. In, in terms of other causes, I, I know now you've expanded uh, in Florida, really pushing for raising the minimum wage and then the legalization of marijuana. So those, I know those are things you're very, very passionate about. If you kind of speak to, speak to those, and then I want to talk about the, the pot daddy stuff. First of all, I think politics is broken. My wife's Republican. I was a Democrat. I look at the left. They're crazier in hell. I look at the right. I mean, listen, when people are wearing buffalo hats with horns, I'm out. What I believe is that most of us agree about most things. You know, I was polling real high. They all, everybody wanted me to run for governor. I was polling real high. But, you know, I don't want to get chewed up like that. Plus, you know, I live in Hawaii half the year. My brother was paralyzed, and marijuana has been a very important part of his life. Because if he didn't use it, Percocet, Xana, I mean, he was a zombie. And so I decided to try to legalize medical marijuana. And I missed the first time by a fraction. And I came back and did it again and passed it with 71% of the world. And then I believe the reason this country is so mad is that the have-nots are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I believe one day, we don't think it could happen. Marie Antoinette didn't think it could happen. Batista didn't think it could happen. The czar didn't think it. You push people so far, they'll just come take your shit because nothing from nothing equals nothing. If your kid's hungry, people are leaving islands in cardboard boats because nothing from nothing equals nothing. So I believe that the issue of our day is income inequality. So I say, you know what? I've already passed marijuana. I believe in the minimum wage. I passed the minimum wage, which is hard in a state like Florida with 61% of a, a landslide. What that proved to me was that most of us agree on most things. But if you put an R or a D next to it, we don't agree except about 47% on one side and 47% on the other, and the 6% decide the best. So I did the marijuana for my brother. I did the minimum wage because I feel passionately. I pay all my people 50, at least $15 an hour. And I think I wanted to prove to America 
and to other politicians. And I, and I think you'll see now people are always talking about Florida's minimum wage. I think in this deep south for that to have happened was a seismic shift. And now you're seeing businesses are voluntarily raising their wage to 16, 17. And I believe it's good politics for self-preservation because if you don't, there'll be a day where you'll be living in Mad Max where people will be coming into your house, taking your stuff because you get so desperate, you have no choice. So those have been the things I've done in Florida, very gratifying, and it's worked out for me because I've been like on a crusade down in Florida for 10 years. Now, there's going to be some people that are, are watching this or listening to this, and they'll say, well, that's, that's easy for him to say. It's easy for him to do. And, and a lot of what we talked about yesterday is the fact that everything worthwhile is an uphill climb. And it, it seems like everything you try to do, there's always some resistance or pushback against it. Like I even saw recently they're trying to cap the amount that you can actually donate to some of these causes and so on. If you could speak to just the friction that you've had to go up against to really get things done, and not just with the, you know, the marijuana or the minimum wage, but just even in growing the law firm. Well, look, there's always resistance. There's always vision blockers, I call them. There's always somebody trying to stop you from doing this. Anything that's worthwhile is not easy. But what I would say to that is this. Sam Walton had 10 rules. Number 10 was the most important. And what he said was swim upstream. When you see people coming downstream, they're on these big floats, sucking on my ties, cocoa butter all over their fat asses, just rolling down the river. They don't know where they're going. They're just going somewhere fast and maybe over. But Sam Walton said, swim upstream. So you're in there swimming upstream. You're passing the people in the floats and the inner tubes sucking on the Mai Tais with the cocoa butter who may be going to their death. But once you get to the top, there's a very furrowed, fallowed soil. And when Sam Walton left downtown Ben Franklin and went out to a field and built a box, kind of a box like this, everybody said, you're crazy. But guess what? He swam upstream. And what I will tell you, Mike, is when people tell you you can't, that just means they can't. That doesn't mean you can't. That doesn't mean, that just means they won't. It doesn't mean you won't. And so when people say no, I have a saying, you know, no means yes. People tell me no, no means yes. And so you have to make sure that you understand that a lot of people are trying to stop you from being great because they know they can't be great. And misery loves company. Love them or hate them, there's something we can all learn from John's approach towards growth. Our next guest was actually roommates with John in college, legendary trial attorney, television and radio host, and best-selling author, Mike Papantonio. I kicked off my conversation with Mike by asking him what the catalyst was behind his numerous ventures. First of all, it starts with a vision. You, I'm, in, I'm in Pensacola, Florida. It's not a big city. So, you know, the idea was to build something that had a national scope. And what ends up happening so often is that... Um, that, that people look at their situation, they said, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm here. I have to dig into what I've been handed down. I don't know why that's so typical of lawyers, but one time I wrote a book uh, in, in the early days, it was, it was called In Search of Atticus Finch. 
I had some shrinks look at some questionnaires that we sent out to a bunch of lawyers. And the shrinks came back and I said, well, what is the biggest problem that lawyers have where it comes to being innovative, where it comes to accepting change, where it comes to doing something that Mary or Bob or Sally down the road is something different? And they said, it's fear of rejection. They said lawyers and the numbers were, the, Michael, the numbers were startling. They were, it's the fear of failure. Uh, and so what they end up doing is they, you know, they get this coffee cup that's been handed down to them for generation after generation. And I always want to tell them, take that coffee cup and throw it up against the wall, crash it up against the wall and do something different. That's where mass torts came from. That's where we, when we started mass torts made perfect. The idea was we had a national reach. Let's go ahead and take advantage of that national reach and make it bigger. Some people bought in. I was seeing, I saw uh, Marco Mara out there, matter of fact, when I came in and I saw Shannara. Those are two people I said, why don't you try mass torts? And they did. And it changed a lot, a lot about their practice. It's a mystery to me why we would have people who are such type A personalities that choose to put themselves in a type B world and do everything the way everybody else does it. I don't have an answer for it, but I can tell you that's the problem. And I know you say fear of rejection. If you could speak to, you know, there's a saying that everything worthwhile is an uphill climb. And if you could talk about maybe some of the rejection you faced on the way up, it seems like everything you would do, there's to be someone criticizing it. There'd be some naysayer. You ought to welcome criticism. Criticism comes out a lot of times because you're doing that thing that they don't have the courage to do, that they're not willing to take. Let me tell you a quick story. Let me shift it just a second. Years ago, I was, we put on the National Trial Lawyer Program. Keith Givens and I owned that program down in Miami, along with Mass Torch Made Perfect. But I saw you come on stage, okay? Now, I've seen a lot of vendors over the years. But you look different, Michael. You had a vision. What you were talking about connected with me because it was something that I wasn't hearing. And I mean, I'm, in, I'm sitting here in the studio, what, six years later? And this is what you were talking about. So it has to begin with that notion of I want to do something dramatically different. You've done it. You're exhibit A where it comes to vendors. And truthfully, everybody on these camera, everybody watching this right now, I tell them, reach out, do something that raises your vision, man. Everybody's doing way on 1-800-CRASH. Everybody's doing comp. Everybody's doing the same thing. And we have this license to be so creative. We have this license to change culture. When we started the tobacco litigation, Pensacola, Florida, I mean, think about that. Opioids started in Pensacola, Florida. 48 of the biggest pharmaceutical cases in the country started in Pensacola, Florida. Eight of the largest environmental cases, Pensacola, Florida. But it starts with that, it starts with that, what do I want to be when I grow up? You know, uh, you know, your best, you know, the best color you can wear is plaid. That should be your favorite color. <laughs> And that, what I mean by that is there's many different parts of being a lawyer. So use that license. Come out to Mass Towards Made Perfect. You had, you had it right. You know, there'll be 2,000 people in a room, and I'll talk about, let me use an example. Roundup. You were out there when we were talking about Roundup. I said, go get these cases. They're important cases. Maybe after I did that, maybe 10 lawyers in 2,000 got real serious and went after them. 
the opioid case, right? You were out there when that big fight was taking place. Pap, you know, Pap Antonio, you can't do this. You can't, you can't represent counties and cities and sue the distributors. And the people who said, that's a pretty good idea. Was there $26 billion on the state, on, on the table right now, just for one part of that case? So it's just a matter of saying, why am I stuck in this merry-go-round? You got out of the merry-go-round. You see, you could have done the same thing everybody else did, but you didn't. I know you've said in the past, you've said this a lot, that being too comfortable is a very dangerous thing. Well, first of all, being too comfortable, it draws you into just average, doesn't it? I wrote a book one time, it was called Resurrecting ESOP. It was a motivational book for lawyers. And in there, what I was trying to explore is what happens when you become too comfortable. When a lawyer does, and I had called on the shrinks again, you know, did a questionnaire, shrinks, what do you think? And they surprised me again. They said the biggest problem lawyers have with burnout, the reason they end up with drug problems and alcohol problems and five marriages and kids that, you know, they can't control is because their life isn't all that balanced. And the reason it's not balanced is because they're doing the same thing the same way every single day. Doesn't that sound like a gulag? And so what ends up happening is people end up just becoming so average. They become so focused that they have burnout. It's the one cause of burnout. So I'm, I'm urging you, try what I'm asking. Just take one step. Try one case with me. Take one project with me. I, I see Madeline Penley right there. She's with my office. Madeline has been out of school for two years. We have her taken the key depositions in some of the biggest cases in America. Why do we do that? Because I believe she has the same ability that a lawyer, older lawyer has if she focuses on it. So anybody wants to jump in with me, please do. Come out to Vegas, call me, Zoom me on face-to-face. -face. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, it will change the way you practice law. And outside of these, let's say, cases and litigations, on the note of you know, being uncomfortable, what, what keeps you up at night right now? Right now, I'm, let me do full circle. What right now keeps me up is this. Most corporations that we deal with are, have sociopaths on the other side of the table when I'm taking a deposition. You can't compromise with a sociopath. Okay, you can't. So if you can't compromise with them, what do you have to do? You have to take them to trial. You have to punish them. Otherwise, what ends up happening? It perpetuates itself, right? MBA school, Joe's an MBA school, right? He hears about Uncle Todd, Uncle Todd, who pulled it off. He pulled it off. He came up with a product, kept it on the market, a pharmaceutical. He lied to the regulators. He passed money around to politicians. He, he captured the media. And before you knew it, he sold a gazillion of these drugs. And yes, it did kill a thousand people, but Uncle Todd made $80 million in the process for himself on his exit from the company. Keeps me up at night that there aren't enough trial lawyers that'll walk into a courtroom and, and go after these sociopaths. It scares the hell out of me if you want to know the truth. Compromise doesn't do it. You mentor a number of trial lawyers. What in, in your experience have you seen are some of the biggest mistakes that they make? They're things that you're helping to coach them with? Well, the biggest thing is the commitment. I tell my young lawyers, I said, if you can't walk into a room and have a thousand people around you and every one of them disagrees with you, everybody thinks you, you know, you're, what you're saying is ridiculous, it's nonsense, and still feel good, and you know you're on the right side, and still feel good, I'm fine with these people shouting at me. You talked about it over here, didn't you, when you just gave that speech. You said people were critical of you. 
and what you were trying to do is accomplish. You had a goal. You had a mission. And if you can't play that mission out, then you're never going to be a real trial. Or it's got it's got to be real, man. You've got to have a real commitment to wanting to help consumers. And right now, I've, I'm so entangled with my commitment on human trafficking. I, new book comes out. It's uh, supposed to be released next month, I think. It's called Inhuman Trafficking. And all these books I write are are based on cases that we've handled. You'll like this book a lot. But as I was writing it, I more and more sold myself on the idea of how much this matters. So I have to do that every day. I have to remind myself what I do matters. You know, as the saying goes, you'll never be criticized by anyone doing more than you, right? I want to talk about the books, though. The, so these books, these legal thrillers, I remember seeing these, like Law and Addiction and so on. Like, I want to talk about your process when you do this, because I've heard you go off, and I don't know if you go off into the woods or a cabin, but you are <laughs> off the grid, and then you come back with a book. <laughs> I am off the grid for a while. Well, okay, so they're easy to write because they're all based on real events. For example, one of them's based on uh, the Yaz case. Uh, it's a $48 million verdict in South Texas. And that was, a, that was a, a product that was killing women. It was a birth control pill. And so around that actual event comes a pretty good mystery about a, a bunch of excitement. Second book was built around a whistleblower case. Guy comes in and he's got a, uh, he says they're manufacturing a gun sight, goes on pistol and a rifle that is defective and it's killing people. So we handle that case and the second book is built around that. Third case built around the opioid case, right? It's called Law and Addiction. So all of it's pretty easy to do because you kind of go to court that day, right? And you come home, <laughs> you make some notes, you create some characters. I love this last one. I really do. I've created some great new characters in this last one called Inhuman Trafficking, distributed by Skyhorse, Simon Schuster. That'll be out in about a month. I want to talk about kind of the, the reason why you write these books, because because of the economics, I think, of these major litigations and the price they put on a human life, you know, they'll settle, they'll spend money. But it, it seems like the, the reason for the documentaries, the books is just raising awareness by the general public. Like, you've got to really get it out there because it takes a lot to take down these billion dollar companies. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Morris Dees has been a friend a lot of years to me. He wrote the foreword on the first book I wrote, In Search of Atticus Finch. He was one of these people that were marching in the streets. People were throwing rocks at him, turning hoses on him, having dogs sicked on him. So he walked the walk. And I said to him one time, uh, I said, Morris, what is it that changed the whole cycle of civil rights in the country? And he said, well, you'd like to think it's one event. You'd like to think it's Rosa Parks sitting on the back of the bus. You'd like to think it's three men that are sitting at a, having food served at a diner. You might think it's just this march or that march. He says, it's all that. It's all those things that culminate. And all of a sudden, what you create is this major leap. It's a major cultural leap. And I have always lived by that. Documentary here, book here, speech here, TV show here, whatever it is, whatever it is. You're talking about branding. That's my brand. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Everything, everything comes into who is that guy? Who is that person? And all that centers around my effort to try to get the message out on any one of those projects. Mike Papantonio clearly knows what's required to take on the highest profile cases. Brian Panish, one of the country's leading trial attorneys and founding partner of Panish, Shea & Boyle, has also achieved record-breaking results in the courtroom. I asked Brian what separates the good lawyers from the great ones. 
Well, I mean, there's a lot of things, but it's it's about winning. It's about competition, never giving up. But really, the most important thing, I think, is the passion, the passion for what you do. For me, it's about the clients. And I just love hearing the stories of all these different people. Look, I grew up in this city, in the inner city. I knew all kinds of people from every race, religion, color, hang out with them. When I was in college, you know, there's different races on the football team. You know, a college I went to was a redneck kind of area, big agriculture area. So I just love all the different people and the jurors and the clients and just and the competition. I really love. And I took something from Edward Bennett Williams, which my one of my uh, mentors, Brown Green, told me that Edward Bennett Williams, he lived contest living. And in life, there's really three areas where there's always a winner and loser in today's society. You know, everybody gets a trophy, everybody gets recognition, but in three areas of life, number one, politics, number two, athletics, and number three, courtroom law. Those things all kind of work for me. I've been a lot, very involved in politics, but athletics and the courtroom, it's a little tougher because you don't get to do as many trials as you do play games. And, you know, we play a game, you have a bad loss, you can't sit around and think about it. You got to go back to the next day to practice and move on. So we have a 24-hour rule here where you can celebrate or commiserate for one day, and then you got to move on to the next case. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting when you mentioned that, you know, it, in life, especially as you talk about participation trophies and winners and losers, what do you think is really the, the difference between the two? You know, I imagine it's a function of discipline and accountability. Those are probably big components, but what are the really the big, the biggest separators? Well, you know, I, I just read a book called Winning by Tim Grover. I don't know if you, I would recommend that to everyone. He lists factors for winning, but he lists everyone with a number one. And his philosophy is, well, if you have a number five, you're not going to pay attention to that as much as number one. And a lot of what he talks about is, his first book was called Relentless, but he talks about somebody else has winning, you need to take it from them. Winning, you hear a lot of people say, oh, it's it's a marathon. It's not a marathon. It's a sprint that never ends. And these kind of, this mindset, I think, can drive a lot of people to be successful. But dedication, hard work, all that is a given. You know, not, we don't even look into that. That's given. The knowledge of the subject matter, all of that. It's more the mindset of how you go about it, what you do to perfect it, and how you carry it out every day. I've heard you say this so many times, that doing more trials, getting in the courtroom, so much of it seems like just being in the arena, but a large majority of even trial lawyers, it's almost like, I don't know if there's like this apprehension to trying cases or they want to be perfect or they're trying to watch webinars or whatever it is, but it seems like you were just like, just get on the field. You do, but you want to be prepared for it. I, I, that's why the training is so critical and to try out new things, to try, not be afraid to experiment and try the thing. You know, look, a lot of the things that I have, been successful with, other lawyers invented it. And I've, as we all have, taken from others and learned from so many others, and Mo Levine, all these great lawyers and reading the books and going to the seminars. I did all that too. I still read the books about the lawyers and the techniques, but I think it's working on it. And that's what I get from the sports, whether it be golf, tennis, you have to keep working on that skill to get better. And I see these kids, like my kids, they have personal coaches. Everyone's, why, why aren't lawyers 
being trained by coaches and trainers like professional athletes and others. And that's what I've tried to incorporate into our firm is that level of training to get better, to excel. And I've heard you encourage other law firm owners to, to pay attention to the business of law and to not lose sight of the business side when they're really trying to grow their firms, if you could elaborate on that. Well, a lot of lawyers, they just say, oh, just give me the fall. I want to go to trial. But, you know, if you're running a big firm, it's a business. You have to have the right people in place. You have to monitor your, your spending, your marketing. I mean, there's a whole bunch to run in a law firm. And many great trial lawyers aren't always the greatest businessmen. So you want to get with other people that may be good at that. Some lawyers, you don't want them to do anything on the business side. You just want them to be in trial every day. That's where they excel. But if you really want to have a, a firm, you want to grow it, and you want to be successful, you have to pay attention to all those details. They don't really talk about them that much at these seminars. It's more sexy to hear the lawyer talk about how you get the $100 million verdict versus how you get the right malpractice insurance and how you keep your overhead down in running a firm. They're very important. And as a plaintiff lawyer growing up, seeing my dad, who eventually was a plaintiff lawyer, there could be some lean times. And that's just part of the business that we're in. And just like in professional sports, it, the importance of building strong teams and having you know just great teamwork. I know you mentioned this in building a great team at your practice. Like, what were some of the lessons that you learned over time in, in building the organization, particularly with with the team? The number one thing that was important in a law firm is culture. Just like a team, just like a locker room. If you have people that are committed to the goals of the firm and create that culture. You're going to do fine. But if you have people, we used to call it in football, the coach say, you know, guys that have shit in their nose and they got a runny nose and they're in the locker room and they're changing. And the next guy next to them, they're not playing or in a law firm. They're not getting the good cases. Or then they start complaining and he starts giving it to him. And it's going around the locker room unless you have leadership and leaders and a culture that's defined that's going to permeate in your law firm. So I think number one is the culture and defining who you are and what you want to be. And for us, our culture is we're going to get the best results for the clients. We're going to do the best work. We're going to try the case if they're not going to pay what's fair and reasonable for the client. And we're going to continue to do a great job and build our brand and our reputation and continue to get better. And if you do that, you're going to be successful. But if people don't want to work here, then I'm the first one to tell them, hey, if this ain't working out for you, you know, go ahead. You know, the coach, you go complain to the coach and say, I'm not playing. They're like, well, maybe you should do something about it or go to another team. And you see that in college football with this portal now. You get these 19-year-old kids, they go to the school. All of a sudden, the other guy beats them out. Tomorrow, they leave. That's not the culture you want to establish. And you see that in college athletics now, big time. And speaking of culture, I mean, as you've described yours, I imagine there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this podcast and say, I want that same culture at my law firm. But what are some of the decisions that you're making, whether it's, you know, certain non-negotiables, certain things that you do not tolerate, whether it's certain types of people that you hire, or certain people that you have to exit from the firm that ensure that culture stays what it is? Well, I think, number one, they have to be uh, dedicated to the practice and the clients, and they got to know about the cases. They got to work hard, but they got to know that it's not about them. It's always about the client. And it's the client comes first. It's not about them getting a big verdict or getting the headlines. It's about doing the right thing for the client. And if you keep that in mind, you're always right. It's when you stray from that and you want to get a bigger verdict and you don't want to settle or 
do whatever it takes to get out there in the media. Sometimes it's not advisable to go out of the media. It's not always a good thing, but people are more into themselves. You know, this and this, Tim, you can ask Tim Grover about this line to oneself is another uh, one of his factors or themes where people are so busy out there in the social media or puffing up what they've done versus spending the time to go out and do it and accomplish it themselves. And that lying to oneself, that's one of his big things that he talks about. So, Brian, as you grew the practice just over the years, what were some of the, the biggest mistakes you made? Because I'd, I'd love to hear about some of those and some of the things that you learned in the process. Well, obviously, the biggest mistakes plaintiff lawyers make is case selection. If you have that down, you're going to be a way better off. And at times, we've got involved in cases that we shouldn't have. And we've learned from that. So I would say... That would be a big mistake. I think maybe for me, not having been more uh, global, and it's what I mean by that is, I mean, I was involved in MDL type litigations around the country, but now I'm much more involved in other states in the West. And I think what I've encouraging all the lawyers of my firm now to do as soon as they take the bar is to get admitted in another state and to expand your practice that way. I've done that at the end of my I'm like, I say I'm in the third quarter. I'm like a redshirt junior. But uh, up front, so now I give a special bonus for every lawyer after they take the bar if they go take another bar. And to help them expand their practice globally, you know, whether it be in California, Nevada, you know, I'm in Texas or uh, Washington. I like to do cases in other places too and to learn more. So I think not thinking as globally, you know, I was more initially – California is a big place, California, and there's different parts of the state, and I've done all over the state, but now being involved in Nevada and Arizona, Washington, and Texas, just finished the case in Texas, it's uh, expanding the horizon, so I like it. So I think think globally earlier. And what about other law firms? I know some firms, they look at every other firm around them in their market as a competitor. How do you view that? Do you view that as competition or do you view something else? One time I was fishing with my dad in the lake and these guys across from us were catching all kinds of fish. And of course they were illegally chumming and stuff, but I'm like, come on, man, those guys are beating us. He says, what you need to know in life is you need to compete with yourself, not others. Now we obviously, we know what everyone's doing. We see what other law firms are doing. Some are doing good things. Some do things I wouldn't do. I have respect for them. And I guess you could say some are competitors, but I don't really see that as much today in the way the practices. It used to be we would go around and there'd be five law firms interviewing for a case. That doesn't happen as much today. With the internet, with TV marketing, that has changed. The practice, particularly here in Los Angeles, since when I became a lawyer in 1984 to today is dramatically changed. And you have to be able to change with the times. When you get to the level that Brian's gotten to, your only competition is yourself. Tim Grover knows this all too well. He's served as the performance coach to the most elite athletes on the planet, including Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. He's also the best-selling author of Relentless and Winning. To set the tone for our conversation, I asked Tim about his decision to write his most recent New York Times bestseller, Winning. Well, you know what? I didn't want to do a workout book. So everybody was taught me, obviously I was... That's what I'm most famous for is the individuals that I've worked with. But 
workouts change so often and everybody wanted to know how these individuals, they got to be at the top and stay at the top. And even when they fell, how they got back to the top. And I was like, and mindset was too of a general topic. Everyone loves to talk about mindset, mindset, mindset. Well, what the hell is mindset? I needed, I need a better definition. So instead of mindset, it's the winning mind. There's a huge difference between just a general mindset and having a mindset of actually winning. So what my individuals did, they just constantly won over and over and over again, not just in their sports, but in business and whatever whatever they did. So being around those individuals, being able to study, ask some questions, see things that nobody else was able to see, having conversations that nobody else was privy to. I mean, literally to be able to sit down with Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Derek Jeter, and just just listening to them talk. No cameras around, no nothing. And how competitive that they were, the things that were coming up. And I was like, you know what? There is a really big misconception of what it takes to be successful and what it takes to really be classified as a winner. And I'm known as that individual that I say what others won't say and I see what others aren't willing to see. So when I wrote this book with my co-author, Sherry Wank, I wanted to put the real language of winning, what it really, really takes. It's not about the parade. It's not about the streamers. It's not about the confetti. It's about the road that you take, the amount of time you spend to capture that win and how quickly that win can be taken away from you. Because everybody thinks once you become a winner, you're always a winner. But no one understands most people are actually afraid to win. And I give the reasons of why they're afraid to win. When you wrote this book, who was this book for? Because were you trying to convert anybody or were you just trying to reinforce people? Because as I was reading this, I mean, I probably was nodding along the whole time. And then I spoke to a few colleagues of mine that read it and they, you know, they didn't like it. They didn't like the tone of it. They, you know, this, I found that either, you know, there's some people that just, the, the true competitors, they love it. Like it almost tells their life story in a way. And then there's other people who read it and say, I don't agree with that. That seems a little harsh. Well, you know what? This is where I said, when you, when you read this book, when you read my posts on Instagram, when you listen to me talk, take your emotions out of it. Just take your emotions out of it. Because most decisions are made because you get emotional about something or something strikes you in a certain way or brings up a bad memory. This book is for everyone. I always say, listen, I'm not for everyone. I should be, but I'm not. Not everybody has this intensity. Not everybody has this desire to be the best. Not everybody has this desire to compete, not just to compete, but to compete to win. You know, we're, we're in a place now where people are so worried about stepping on people's toes and winning requires you to step on their throats by your results. And for a lot of people, it is harsh. It, it is harsh, you know, because if you have the mentality of a winner and you can actually execute at, at it, you separate yourself from the pack. So you get to see, you get exposed. You get exposed to 
not being in the middle, you get exposed to the decisions you make, the things that you things that you say, you're putting yourself away from the pack. And once people start to pull themselves away from the pack and real realize how much little protection or support they actually have and how much it's really on them, they're like, yeah, this this might be a little this might be a little bit too much. So it's easy for them to kind of go back into the middle of the pack. When the first book, Relentless, it was like everybody's dirty little secret. People would hand it to, hey, I need you to read this book underneath the table. And all, it's just like people don't want to admit that's who they really are. Because in society, if you're if you're built that way or you think that way, you're not a nice person or people have perceptions of you. And this has got nothing to do with being nice, being hated, being good, being bad. No matter what decision you make, no matter who you're with, some people are always going to be with you. Some people are not going to be with you. Some people are going to agree with your decisions. Others aren't going to agree with your decisions. This is about you standing up for what you believe in and going after what's important to you. What do your wins mean for you? For a lot of people, it's financial. For other people, it could be raising their kids. For others, it could be the charitable things that they have, being the best school teacher, being the best, you know, whatever it is. You have to define what winning means to you. And if you take that mentality, you'll see that if it's that important to you, this book is you. I want to touch on the process of winning. So Matt Frazier was on the podcast five-time CrossFit Games champion. And I, I was asking him, I'm like, you know, Matt, you have this you know, this immense drive to compete. Um, what about the training? He's like, I hated the training. Uh, he's like, every minute of every day had to be managed from when I went to sleep, from when I ate, from when I trained. He's like, it's miserable. But and so, I, you know, I asked him, I was like, so why did you do it? You know, he's like, well, because I crave that result. That's it. I mean, there's no, what else is that? What else is there left to say? Training is hard, all right? It, it, it is hard. It's supposed to be hard. Winning is hard, all right? Eating properly is hard. Saving money is uh, uh, investing. All, the, all these things, that be, it is supposed to be hard. Everybody's looking for that easy path. Everybody's looking for those steps. That's why people, when, when I was writing the book, one of the big thing that, you know, Sherry and I, we were discussing with the publisher and other individuals, everybody's saying, you got to put steps in there because steps sell books. Five easy steps, you know, 10 steps to greatness, five steps to success. You're talking about the most fittest human being in the world, all right? Have him run up a flight of steps, all right? I don't care what kind of shape you're in. That, 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 that shit is hard. And everyone's looking for those easy steps. There are no easy steps. No, we're trying to make everything easy. When I go to work out, you know, I used to see advertisements all the time about, you know, work out in the comfort and ease of your own home. If a workout is comfortable and easy, it's not a workout. It's it's not it's not a workout, but that's what that's what sells. That's and motivation sells too. That's why there's so many individuals out there that sell motivation because what when they are selling motivation, that means you're going to keep buying. I don't sell motivation. I sell elevation, all right? And the big difference between the two is, you know, exactly what Matt said, all right? Motivated individual, you have to constantly keep selling uh, motivation is, man, you got to, that person you got to convince every single day that, you know, yes, the workouts are hard. It is nasty. It is going to be unpolished. I have to manage all, all this, 
all those individuals. When you sell elevation, elevation is internal. It's not external. Motivation is external. All right. Elevation is internal. They know when they get to the gym, when they get up, yes, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be tough. I know it's going to be painstaking. But they take that accountability on themselves. They take that accountability on themselves. And there's a huge difference between motivation and elevation. Motivation is that sugar high. It's that initial sugar high. You get you get really spiked up. I see people that go to these events all the time and they come in and they're all pumped up and they're like, yes, I, yeah, I, I'm ready to I'm ready to go. But they have no direction of where they're going in. So I tell you the most popular when I give my presentations, I don't want a standing ovation. When I get done, I want complete silence in the room. I want complete silence in the room because then I know those individuals. They truly, when they say they're ready to run through a wall, they're going to run through that wall. They are going to run through that wall because that's something that's going to last, that's going to stay with them. That's going to stay with them. And winning stays with you. Your wins stay with you. No one can ever take those wins away from you. Nobody can ever take your elevated mindset away from you. They can take your motivation away from you. Because motivation, you got it through somebody else. But what you earned on your own, no one can take that away from you. You know, there's a chapter when you talk about, you know, the, the, the price of winning and the, in this idea of balance. And it's interesting. I know you give a lot of examples and a lot of the athletes and the entrepreneurs you work with, but you were right there with them also making a lot of these sacrifices. And in particular, one of the stories you tell was the one with, with your daughter. And uh, if you're open to sharing it, I mean, me reading it, I have two young girls. So I'm reading this stuff and it's, I imagine it's not an easy story to tell. It's not. It's still difficult now. I mean, everybody's had to make this decision. I mean, I'm sitting there. For my work, I travel constantly, constantly, because my clients require me to be in certain places. I got, I got to go. It's a commitment I made for myself. It's a commitment I, I made to them. It's a commitment I made to winning. So, you know, I was packing. I packed my own stuff. My daughter, My daughter walks in. And she goes, Daddy, why do you travel so much? And I said, you know, honey, this is how, you know, I take care of you. This is how I take care of mom. This is, you know, this is how I put food on the table. And she goes, Dad, if I eat less, will you stay home more? You know, in the Hollywood ending, everybody, I would unpack my bag. I would have stayed. We'd have gone out for ice cream. I kept packing. Those are the decisions that winning requires you to make. Not the easy ones. Anybody can make the easy ones. That's why everybody doesn't win. Because those are the decisions winning is going to test you with. And I later on, I had that conversation with her. And I thought I had done things wrong in her eyes find out that before I could even finish a conversation, she goes, Dad, I understand. You set an example for me. To go with, go after what's important to you. And she goes, if you didn't, she goes, I would have felt bad. And she, because of those decisions you made, 
I've benefited so much more now. So that's why I said, when you, if you're going to make those hard decisions, you're going to do those things, you, you have to go get those wins. There's so many individuals that go out there, they don't get those wins because it takes a different mindset. It requires you to be different. You know, I said, you know, winning requires you to be different and different scares people. Like a lot of people were, are scared to make that decision. You know, after all these years, it still affects me now. Well, it still affects me now, but you're never going to have what that win means to you if you don't have the ability to make the unpopular decisions. You know, there's going to be people who hear stories like this, they'll read the book and they'll hear about these sacrifices and say, well, why would I ever want to win then? Why, you know, I'm not willing to do things like this. I would never do that. What do you think they're missing out on? The way Kobe Bryant described winning, he said, winning is everything. There's a win. Listen, we we have a chance to win every single day. Every single day there are wins around us. A lot of us can't even see them. They can't even they can't even see them. You miss out on opportunities when you don't talk to individuals, when you don't look at individuals in the eye, when you don't acknowledge an individual, when you don't simply speak. There's winds around us every single day, but you have to go get them. Yeah, you have to go get them. First, you have to be able to see them. First, you have to be able to acknowledge them. Winning gives you a feeling that you can't, you just can't describe. You really, you really, you really can't. I mean, you watch your favorite sports team or you watch your favorite performer or, whether, you know, we watch all these awards uh, for, you know, for actors, actresses, business people, sports people. And, you know, if your sports team wins, you're up there. Why not have that feeling for yourself? Yeah, it may not be in the sports industry. How about being your own cheerleader and putting that same effort into something that's that important to you and see how, see how that feels? Everyone talks about the athlete, you know, how much sacrifice they made, how talented they are, what they go through. Well, you can do the same thing. It may not be in that endeavor. I get this people all the time when I work with, especially with the quarterbacks I work with, people, you get these, oh, I could do that. No, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> you know, it's just like there's certain things, but find what you can do and go do it to the best of your ability. No, don't try, because try gives you an out. Go do it. I got no problem with an individual who did everything they possibly could and failed. I have a problem with an individual who didn't. We can all take away something from Tim's story, especially his understanding of the sacrifices and struggles required to win. But how can we know what is worth suffering for? And who better to ask than our next guest, New York Times bestselling author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, Mark Manson. So the, the title is a bit of a Trojan horse. You know, it's like everybody's always stressed out these days. And so I think by putting Not Giving a Fuck on the, on the cover, it kind of tricks people into, into reading this book that they think is going to make them chill out. But I mean, essentially, like what, what Not Giving a Fuck is or what the essentially the question of what do you give a fuck about it's a question of values and priorities. And um, 
I, I strongly believe that the core question of our day and age is what is worth caring about or what is worth focusing on? You know, we're, we live in an age where we are constantly overwhelmed with information and opportunity. And so the biggest struggle for most of us is to figure out where to delegate our attention, our limited time and attention, like what is worth focusing on, what is worth caring about. And that's, it's a really, really hard thing to figure out. And I think, you know, five years ago when the, when the book came out, I think people were very unaware that that struggle was going on within themselves. I think today people are generally aware that that is a struggle, but we, you know, as a culture, we still haven't really figured out how to tackle it. And, 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 you know, it's, uh, I think there's a point in the book, I saw you post this recently on social media where you say that you can't be an important and life-changing presence for some people without also being a joke and an embarrassment to others. Yeah. What, what did you mean by that? <laughs> well, it, it's anything that is, is, I think, kind of exceptional, any action or behavior that is exceptional is going to be polarizing in its responses. So if you're acting and behaving in a way to minimize conflict or confrontation, you're basically optimizing for doing nothing important <laughs> because anything important is going to have some sort of disagreement or like people are going to see it differently. And so the more you're optimizing for something that's important, the more you're going to polarize people's responses. And, and I think the reason that feels profound to me, at least is like, it's kind of an expectation. Like it's, there's a little bit of a narrative bias in that like we look back in history, right? Like we look at somebody like Winston Churchill or like Theodore Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln. And today with the benefit of 50 or hundred years of history, it's like, it is uncontroversial that what Churchill or Lincoln did is a positive thing. Like it is not really debatable by like 99% of people that what they did were positive things. But that's what the benefit of history. Like if you look at the decisions they made in and their, their own time, they were highly controversial. People were extremely upset. There was lots of debate. Everybody was angry. And so I think we forget that. We forget that like there's pretty much never going to be that decision in your life that you are doing something both extremely important and extremely undivisive. The simple, like the really watered down version of it is just like, haters going to hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and look, and, and it's true. And, and, and coming back to this idea of happiness, I mean, because you, you confront it very early on. I mean, you say like this happiness stuff, it's, it's a problem. And, you know, a lot of people believe like, if I could just eliminate my problems, then I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. Like I just, it's just this idea that uh, let's say, you know, whatever set of problems that somebody has, they resolve those things. And then in the absence of those problems, there's just joy and happiness. And I, I think there's a story that you share. Uh, and I love reading this, especially for the plot twist, right? With, of the Himalayan prince, um, which is mm -hmm. a great way of depicting this. Um, if you're open to, if you're open to sharing that, but I think that helps to give an idea of like really kind of the, the root of happiness and perhaps the importance of suffering. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, this calls again, right back to Eastern philosophy. I mean, it's, it's essentially, it's the mythological story of the Buddha, you know, which is, and I think it's very profound the way that the Buddha's story is laid out traditionally, which is he's born a prince. All of his needs are fulfilled. His, his father's the king or the Raja or the Sultan or whatever they were called back then gives him everything 
anything he wants, all the food, drink, party, music, whatever he wants, it's always provided for him. And he becomes a very deeply sad and unsatisfied person. And so he decides to go to the other extreme, which is he wants to limit or abstain from everything. So he decides to go be a beggar on the street because he, he, he identifies that his, you know, having everything he wants is, is what's causing him to be unhappy. So if he figures like, well, if I just have nothing that I want, then I'll achieve enlightenment and feel happy or whatever. So he goes and lives in the street as a beggar. And he realizes that that sucks too. Like <laughs> there's, there's the same way you're, uh, you know, having everything you want, uh, just causes angst and stress in wanting more, having nothing that you want causes angst and stress and wanting more. Um, and so I think kind of the, the profound insight from his story is essentially that it's whether you are abundant in something or lacking in something, it's, it's that attachment to that thing that is causing you the, to suffer, not, not the thing itself. I kind of modernize that in the book by talking about you know, framing it in terms of happiness, which is like, if you think that you're going to get rid of all your problems and that's going to make you happy, well, trying to get rid of all your problems is itself a problem. You know, getting rid of your problems and keeping your life so that it has no problems is itself a problem. You know, it's, it's any solution to a problem merely presents a new problem. Um, and so there's kind of this endless stream of problems in life. And our problem is not that we have problems, it's that we think that we shouldn't have them or, or that our expectation is that, you know, it's possible to live without problems. You know, the chapter is very much just a call to find problems you enjoy having, you know, like that's essentially what happiness is, is finding the struggle that enlivens you, makes you excited to get up in the morning, feels meaningful, essentially, because you're never going to get away from struggle. You're never going to get away from attachment and you're never going to get away from problems. So you might as well find the ones that feel as though they are worth suffering for. Yeah. And, and I know that you mentioned before that like when most people are asking, what do you want out of life? The, you know, the, the, probably a better question is what pain do you want in your life or what are you willing to, to struggle for? And I, cause that I think it can yield a very different answer. You ask somebody, what do they want in life? They say, I want to be happy or there's this material thing or, or whatever it is. Um, but that's very nondescript. It's very ambiguous. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's like not interesting, right? Like we all want the same stuff. Like we all want a nice house and a cool car and, uh, a great relationship and like tons of sex and money and fun and like a great family. Like we all want the same shit. Like there's nothing particularly interesting or unique about that. Um, the thing that makes us who we are is like what we're actually willing to sacrifice um, and what we enjoy sacrificing. Right. So like it, it's the reason I'm, I'm a, a writer is not because I like sold a bunch of books. The reason I'm a writer is because I enjoy sitting by myself for weeks and weeks and weeks and like rewriting the same page over and over and over again. You know, it's, it's the reason somebody's a lawyer is not necessarily because they went to law school. It's because it's, they thrive among the challenges that are required to, to do the legal profession well. So it's, it's not the thing that actually makes you a unique individual is what, what you're able to give up or what you're, what you enjoy essentially giving up. Cause we all, we all want the same good stuff. It's like, that's a given. And, and this kind of lends us to the fact that, you know, 
to achieve any of this and that going through the suffering, it's not always a, a great feeling. I mean, it's going to be difficult. You're going to experience adversity. It's going to be painful. It won't feel good. Uh, and I think unless you've gone through this journey and you've, you've kind of, uh, you know, I guess through that action, you've achieved happiness or fulfillment or whatever it is in just that process itself, I think many people can associate what doesn't feel good as being the thing that they should not be doing. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's the fact that it doesn't feel good that makes it meaningful, right? Like, and I think this is, this is an argument I make in my, my second book, which is that, um, by making like, by the, by making modern life so comfortable, so safe and comfortable and, um, and kind of like emotionally insulated, um, we actually remove our ability to, to find meaning. Like if you think about like, what are the most meaningful moments in your life? Or like, what are the things that you're most proud of in your life? There's not a single thing that you're proud of that didn't require some degree of struggle or sacrifice. Like it's, it's a one-to-one relationship. Like there's, <laughs> you know, it's like nobody was like given a Ferrari for their birthday. And they're like, man, I'm really proud of that Ferrari. It's like, you didn't do shit. <laughs> you know, it's like you take the humans, it's just human nature. Like when things are given to you without any sort of sacrifice, you take it for granted. You don't appreciate it. And then it's the things that you struggle incredibly for that end up being the most meaningful things in your life. And so, um, by like trying to insulate ourselves from any sort of struggle or hardship, the psychological side effect of that is that we tend to have more struggles with finding meaning or finding things that, uh, you know, seem purposeful. Now this isn't to say that we should all go back to like living in poverty and like killing each other. It's just to say that this is, this is a side effect of the comforts of modern life is that like, you know, the same way a side effect of having the freedom to live wherever you want or work in any career you want is the stress and anxiety that comes with making the right choice. You know, the side effect of being safe and comfortable is that you don't have as many opportunities to, to feel that that sense of meaning that comes with sacrifice. And it, it almost a, an idea that to truly be happy, one must also be in a state of constant struggle. I mean, I, I saw something you posted the other day where it said that the meaning your goals provide when you're working towards them is the meaning that is taken away once you achieve them. Uh, if you could elaborate on that. Totally. And I experienced this hard, you know, when my book took off and became a bestseller and everything, like it actually, like I was, probably the most depressed I'd been since I was a teenager simply because I didn't know what the hell to do. Like, (laughs) I'm like, okay, what now? You know, like it's, I had this, this goal kind of this dream of like becoming a best-selling author. And in my head, I thought, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to be writing books into my forties and fifties and I'll, I'm going to like build up a reputation and a core group of, of readers. And, you know, maybe in like 10, 15 years, I'll, I'll get there. And it happened in like three months. And I spent like the next six, like sitting around wondering what the hell to do with myself. Like my, my whole vision of my future and my identity was like kind of wrapped up in this, this long-term goal. And, and as soon as I got it, which was great, don't get me wrong. Like I, I just felt very lost. Um, so it's, I mean, what, what you said is totally true and that a, a prerequisite for happiness is a constant source of struggle. And like, this isn't, it's funny because again, if you look outside the realm of emotions, like this is, this is just like an obvious thing in other aspects of, of life. Right. So it's like a health, like to have a healthy body, you have to constantly put 
put it through stress and strain. To have a healthy career, you have to consistently surmount and overcome challenges. Like if you're if you're working in a firm and like you're literally not accomplishing anything, like obviously you're not going to be promoted or you're not going to be given more responsibilities. So it's like in every other aspect of life, like we just understand it as obvious that you need struggle to progress. You need struggle to remain healthy and happy. But for some reason, when it comes to kind of our emotional life, you know, we have this weird expectation that we should just be able to be happy. Like we shouldn't have to deal with anything, you know? Anybody who's ever accomplished anything of significance knows that it often takes struggle to achieve success, but this often requires a great deal of mental toughness. James Lawrence is an expert in this field. He's an extreme endurance athlete, renowned speaker, and world record holder who's completed 101 consecutive Ironman length triathlons in 101 days. I asked James what motivates him to set and achieve such ambitious goals. Yeah, I, you know, I, I I joke all the time and I'm saying, man, that escalated quickly. Um, but it really, it was over the course of a decade. And we, you know, we broke the world record for the most half Ironmans. Then we broke the record for the most full Ironmans, which was 30 um, through 11 countries, all official events. Um, ended up winning two of those, placed second five times and just had an unbelievable experience for myself. I learned a lot. It was a really great stepping stone. Um and, you know, I, I talk about this a lot about how when you're in the middle of something, it's like the hardest thing you can ever imagine and conceptualize because that's the limit of your current experience and knowledge. But then once you overcome, you stick with it and you achieve that goal, then you look back and go, okay, I learned X, Y, Z, and I can now conceptualize and apply that to something even bigger. And so the 50 Ironmans in 50 days through 50 states came about, and we started to put that together. That was a two and a half year planning process. Went and executed that amongst chaos, confusion, and disaster. And then again, that leads you to the belief that you can do more. And over the pandemic, because I'm in the world of speaking, coaching, racing, mentoring, and because of the pandemic, those are all group related activities, and that the world. The world shut down. My world got shut down, and it was an opportunity for me to to kind of give it a give it a last go to see what I'm truly capable of. If we remove kind of that chaos, the logistics, the distractions, what is possible just mentally and physically? And so we settled on the number 100 consecutive full distance triathlons, all to be done here in Utah, just to find out: okay, is the mind and body capable of that type of stress for an entire quarter of a year? So James, I'm curious, David Goggins, I think once said something along the lines of like, when you're setting these like ultra ambitious goals, you're usually doing so from like the comfort of your home or the comfort of your couch. It's rare that you're doing it in the middle of it, right? In the middle of that struggle, you're probably thinking this is awful. So when you set out to do these things, what's, what's that process like? And when are you usually setting those goals? Yeah, definitely not during. I retire every race, um, especially in the middle of it when it's getting hard. You, you swear to yourself and and commit to yourself that this is the very last one. Um, and and so I think we're blessed with short term memory, and we tend to forget how bad the bad was, and we remember the good moments, the successes, and the victories. Um, and, and I think that's a great way to be wired uh, because eventually we do something bigger and harder. And if we knew how difficult a challenge was always going to be, and we only remembered the hard times, we would never go and push our limits. And really, again, the concept of going from zero to 100, I think is flawed. And yes, I want people to set giant goals, but I don't want you to come up off the couch and set an impossible goal for yourself because you're going to set yourself up for failure. These guys that are successful that you see in the limelight that are at the top of their game, 
they went through insane struggles, adversity, and stepping stones along the way to get there. You don't just wake up and go, you know what? 100 Ironmans, 100 days, let's go. Because you you will fail, I promise you that. You have to methodically attack it with intent to achieve the goal. And you need to gain momentum. You got to start chalking up little tiny wins along the way. If not, you're going to fail. And then now you're going to associate failure with you, which isn't who you are, right? We're all winners at our core. But if you go too big too quick, I promise you, you will fail. And then you're going to be labeled that. And it's going to be harder and harder to get off the ground doing successful things. And, and you know, there's James Lawrence and then there's Iron Cowboy. If you could speak to how was this alter ego born? Like at what moment? So the name came in 2012 when we were breaking the world record for official events around the world. And my kids were really young, 10 and under. And it's, a, it's the worst spectator sport on the planet. Like it sucks. Like you, you see me off and then I'm gone for seven hours. And then you come back. Well, that energy exchange is super important. I want it. The kids want it. And we all blend in as athletes, right? We're all wearing similar clothing. We're all, you know, this, that, and the other. And so I would wear a cowboy hat during the marathon portion of those runs. And they, my kids would see me, they get super excited. Hey, dad's coming. Here comes the cowboy hat. And the public just started to call me the Iron Cowboy. And so th that's where the name started. And then really during the 50 is when kind of that alter ego came because I had to dig to a depth that I'd never been before. And, and to go into that extreme flow state um, that, that requires you to put on your uniform, to be something different, to have that alter ego. And it's not a bad thing. People associate ego with a bad thing. It's not. It's, it's, it's getting your mind into a state where you can accomplish something that nobody else thought was possible. And so I've learned how to channel this individual when, when needed to be or when I'm backed into a corner, when things get ugly. And that's in athletics, it's in parenting, it's in marriage, it's in friendships, it's in business. You have to figure out when it gets tough and when things aren't going as well and there's adversity and, and hardship right in front of you, you've got to be able to put on your tough boy uniform and and power through it. And sometimes it takes that mental that mental shift and an alter ego is just a a good cue or a way to way to do it to trick your mind to like, okay, it's it's game time is what we're doing right now. And, and when, when game time's on, there's no excuses and it's, it's easier to execute. So, it, it, but I have to say like, James, like you are probably literally the only human being on this earth who has done the things that you've done. And yet I know like, like when you, when you speak and when you inspire others, you're showing that it is possible. Yet I'm still curious, like, what do you do or what do you believe you do that's different? Because I mean, your results are clearly very different from the majority of other human beings on this planet. It's so easy and quantifiable. You eliminate any type of excuse or entitlement and you show up and do the work. Like that's seriously as simple as it can get. You look, everybody needs to stand up, look themselves in the mirror and go, okay, I'm in this position in my life because of me. I need to take full accountability for where I am. I'm broke, it's my fault. I'm rich, it's my fault. I'm fat, it's my fault. I'm fit, it's my fault. And once you can get to the realization that you're taking accountability for where you are in your life, only then can you start to make the changes that you need to. And so I don't think I'm any different than anybody else. I just make a conscious decision to take accountability for who I am, where I am. And if I want to see a change or don't like what I see, I just take the simple actions to make those changes. Nobody's going to change overnight, right? You can, you can start to change your habits so that you can eventually change 
the pieces of yourself that you don't like or the circumstances that you're in, but it takes time. And everybody gets so discouraged. And the easiest example is an overweight person that's 300 pounds and doesn't like the way they live. They go on a, a lifestyle change for 30 days. They didn't see the changes they want and they abandon it. Well, newsflash, you didn't take 30 days to get to 300 pounds. That took a lifetime to do that. And so let's make some real change and look at what's causing the problem and actually make a change and then take the time necessary. The biggest reason people fail especially with big goals, is because they don't respect the time frame involved in order to have that change or that impact be in what they're doing. And so so really on its surface, and obviously words are, are easier than actions, but on the surface, it's literally like make a commitment, take accountability, and then show up and do the work. And I love that. My title sponsor, who I've been with a long time, First Form, their slogan is we do the work. And they have an unbelievable culture there. They work hard. They're super successful. You want to talk about a successful company working out of the back of your car to over $400 million? Are you kidding me? In supplements? Like, that's a phenomenal story. And their tagline is like, look, I lead with integrity. I do things at a high level. I show up consistently and we do the work. They're accountable for the results that they get. And I think as as humans, we all need to take accountability for the results in our current lives. If you, if you don't like it, make a change. And, and, and I'm speaking specifically to the individuals that live in the United States because that's the landscape that I know. Trust me, I came to this country uh, with no money in my pocket. I knew one person. And I said, I'm going to make, I'm going to give myself a future. I found a beautiful woman. We have kids together. We are living the American dream. And I'm an entrepreneur and I have complete freedom. And, and James, as you look back, just even across your journey, are you proud of yourself? Absolutely. We're, we're not perfect. We've never claimed to be perfect. We make mistakes. We're human like everybody else. Anybody that says they're perfect is is a complete liar and, and full of themselves and they're just having an ego party with themselves. Um, but yeah, absolutely proud of, of what we did. This last campaign um, was executed exactly how we wanted to. I didn't want to have those injuries that I did. I didn't want to have to battle in the way that I did. Um, but I think it brought value to to a lot of people that wouldn't have been able to join us had I been at 100% the whole time. It allowed people to participate with us that wouldn't have been able to. I think it, it had a lot of meaning to it, but absolutely, without a doubt, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't be more proud of myself and the team, um, the way that we executed. We try to do everything with integrity and openness and, uh, and welcome all people to join with us. Regardless of the goals that you set out to achieve, James reminds us that we have absolutely no idea what we're truly capable of. Colin O'Brady adopts a similar approach, not only as a professional endurance athlete and world record holder, but also as the first person to complete a solo, unassisted trip across Antarctica. I asked Colin about what experiences shaped him to become the high-achieving person he is today. You know, I think that I always, you know, had a, a degree of confidence, um, but certainly I wasn't sitting around as a kid dreaming of, you know, walking by myself for a thousand miles across Antarctica. Uh, that came later. Um, but I think it's built on the build on the back of, of different successes and certainly ups and downs. Uh, also, also tragedy. You know, when I was 22 years old, just graduated from college, you know, again, still hadn't really seen much of the world at that point. And I was been painting houses as a kid. Um, and I decided to go on a backpack trip uh, around the world. And it was an amazing experience. I had no money. I was hitching hiking around and sleeping in youth hostels and whatnot. And I found myself on a beach in rural Thailand 
And uh, in that moment, my life changed. You know, there was some guys jumping a flaming jump rope. I was 22 years old at the time, maybe not a fully formed prefrontal cortex. And I decided flaming jump roping looked like some fun, which which it was for an instant uh, up until the rope wrapped around my legs, excess kerosene sprayed the length of my body and lit me on fire to my neck. Uh, and I had to jump in the ocean to extinguish the flames, which saved my life, but not before about 25% of my body uh, was severely burned. Um, you know, and as a young person, it was devastating but it was compounded by the fact that I was in the middle of nowhere. You know, I'm in Thailand. Um, I'm on a tiny little island. Instead of an ambulance ride, I had a moped ride down a dirt path to a one-room nursing station. And I'll never forget the the eight surgeries I underwent there. I never forget the the cat running around and across my chest in this makeshift ICU. I mean, I was in a bad place. But the worst part about it, you were kind of talking about triggers uh, of mindset and growth, which was probably the most emotionally devastating time in my life is a doctor looks me square in the eyes and he says, Hey, Colin, you will probably never walk again normally, which took the physical pain uh, to another level because the emotional devastation of that was immense. But, you know, we're speaking of my mother and her influential uh, influence on me as a young person. You know, she came into my hospital room. She flew across the world to find me. And I'm there. You know, I know now how freaked out she was. I'm sure many people listening are parents. You know, she's a mother. She's looking at her kids, bandaged from the waist down in this shack of a hospital, unsanitary, screaming, writhing in pain, and being told he'll never walk again normally. But somehow she walks in with this air of positivity and grace and positive energy into that hospital room. And she says to me, I know you're in a bad place, Colin. Like, this is horrible. Like, I'm not going to try to hide from the, the fear of this. But I want you to do something for me. Close your eyes and visualize yourself in the future. You know, picture a positive outcome. Now, your, your question is, I didn't picture myself, like, again, walking across Antarctica or climbing these mountains or whatnot. But I closed my eyes and I pictured myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon. Um, which is not something I'd ever done before. I was a collegiate swimmer at Yale. Um, so I have a swimming background, but never biked or run or anything like that competitively. Um, and I said, look, I can see myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon. And the next moment I think is probably one of the most fundamental uh, shifting moments in my entire life because my mom had a choice. She's looking at me. She's looking at a diagnosis. She's looking at me bandaged legs. And she easily could have said, yeah, I said set a goal, but like maybe something more mm, realistic, like you can't walk. But instead, she didn't do that. She grabbed me tight, hold me close like a mother. And she says, great, I believe in you. I believe that you're going to make that visualization uh, a reality in your life. And, you know, kind of fast forward, it was a, a few months till I was taken out of that Thai hospital Still hadn't taken a single step, carried on and off the plane, uh, placed in a wheelchair when I got home. And my mother, she grabbed a chair from our kitchen table and placed it one step in front of my wheelchair. And she says, look, you need to take your first step. And so it was a couple of hours staring at this wheel, at this chair in front of me. Well, from my wheelchair, you know, legs are still kind of bleeding, bandaged, bruised, very fragile. But I took that first step. And that was when my mom said, look, you just took your first step on your road to racing this triathlon. I mean, it seems minuscule. I'm like standing from one chair to the other chair, but that was the beginning. And then 18 months later, I finally did take a job in Chicago as a commodities trader, wanted to kind of get on with my life. I signed up and raced the Chicago triathlon uh, and I achieved that goal. You know, I finished, I finished that triathlon 18 months after being told I would never walk again normally. And kind of the final you know, uh, exclamation point on this story is to my complete and utter surprise. And this is your question. Did I surprise myself? Well, I surprised myself that day, which was, I didn't just finish the race, but I actually won the entire Chicago triathlon placing first out of, you know, nearly 5,000 participants. But 
I mean, to conclude that thought, it wasn't like, oh, I just patted myself on the back and said, oh, wow, I'm some superhuman athlete. My mind, and this is something I think all of us can apply in our own lives, which is my mind went back to that Thai hospital and wondered what would have happened had my mom not forced me to look towards this future and set a measurable goal. Um, And from that, I think I learned one of my life's most valuable lessons, which is not just me, but all of us, every person listening, yourself, um, we all have reservoirs of untapped potential to achieve extraordinary things things, particularly when we can shift our mindset towards the positive and choose how to react um, in tough situations. And so uh, forgive the long rambling answer. um, But, you know, for me, that was a fundamental turning point where everything that I've built, you know, that was in 2008 when I was burned, you know, so in the last 13 years or so has been built off the back of a deep learning, something I had to learn the hard way, literally. But the strength that I've gained from overcoming that obstacle, what my mom instilled in me and finding these reservoirs of strength and courage has definitely pushed me to do the things I've been able to do since then. And Colin, are you finding, I'm just curious, like as as you're growing a little bit older, you're married, you have children in the in the future, right? So are you finding, like, I'm just curious, like how do you balance that, whether it's confidence or hubris of all the things that you've achieved, right? With whatever that next feat is and knowing, okay, how do I approach this in a way where I've still got to make it back? Like, how do you balance that? I don't know if hubris is the word or what, but where do you find, you know, you know where can you draw that line between pushing forward and pulling back? Um, it's a great question. I think that people... Oftentimes, you know, the question, a similar question, it's about fear or risk management or or things like that. And the truth is, you know, people say, oh, God, this guy walked across Antarctica solo. He's climbed these mountains. He got in a rowboat and rode across Drake Passage, the most dangerous stretch of ocean in the world. This guy must be an adrenaline junkie or something like that. But to be perfectly honest, I really don't see myself uh, in that light at all. I don't think I'm, I'm chasing uh, adrenaline, like a game of Russian roulette that I hope that I keep winning. These are calculated, you know, these are thought out, these are trained. I'm not saying there's not a risk, you know, the risk and the, the tenuous nature of these is what does bring apart some of the richness of the experiences. But at the same time, you know, I, I really do think them through moment to moment, step by step, day by day, and evaluate that. As I've gotten older, I don't think that I'm going to necessarily take on uh, different projects, but I do think that there is at some point a fallacy of, you know, look, I've said 10 world records and someone's like, oh, what's the next biggest, hardest, bigger mountain, further continent, you know, harder way to do X, Y, or Z, um, like the one upmanship of yourself. And I think, you know, at some point that that's a losing game for sure. And so, you know, at this point, I still have all sorts of big dreams out there in the world of exploration and various ways to kind of push my body in unique and interesting ways. But it's not necessarily built on the backs of, you know, what's the most headline catching thing? What's the the hardest thing you could possibly imagine? You know, my, my ego doesn't necessarily, you know, need that. You know, what people say, you know, what are you afraid of? You know, you must not have fear. And I actually have all sorts of fears, but my biggest fear is really in not living and not living the full totality of life's experience. Um, you know, this may resonate with some of your audience or not, but, you know, I've some, come to think about life sort of on a spectrum of one to 10, you know, one being the worst day of our entire life and 10 being, you know, the, the highest, you know, beautiful, most beautiful day, the day your first child is born or some, you know, really high peak moment of your life. 
But I think too often, certainly in, in Western culture, um, at a certain socioeconomic level, we actually end up in this zone of comfortable complacency, you know, this zone between four and six, you know, maybe your boss yells at you at work at one day, but you don't like your job enough. It doesn't really matter. So like, yeah, it's a four, but it's definitely not a one. You're like, whatever. I don't really like this job anyways. Or like on the weekends, you're watching a football game with your buddy, drinking a couple beers, your team wins, you know, maybe you had 20 bucks on the game. Oh, great. That's awesome. But that's a six. Like it's not a 10. And I think too often we're stuck in this zone of comfortable complacency. So rather than thinking about one to 10 in a linear plane, I kind of think of it as a parabola or a pendulum swinging back and forth, which is I've realized to experience the tens, you also need to embrace the ones. You also need to put yourself in challenging circumstances. Um, you know, my, my solo crossing Antarctica was a beautiful experience, not because nothing bad happened, but because it was hard and it was gritty and it was tough. And I found myself at the lowest moments of my life, but because I was able to not hedge against that downside one, but embrace those ones, both the ones and the tens can come to life. And I both see them as valuable. So my biggest fear, um, or the way I look at risk is actually my biggest fear is to living stuck in this zone of comfortable complacency from the four and six, you got to have some four and six days, you got to transfer through theirs from time to time. But I want to live the full tapestry of life's experience. And I think that too often in our culture, um, life brings us to that comfortable middle and we don't allow ourselves to take on any sort of risk to allow ourselves to feel those peak moments of those tents. Of all the adventures he's undertaken, the one Colin is presently most known for is his record-setting trip across Antarctica. I asked him to elaborate on what drove him to attempt such a seemingly impossible journey. What I was attempting to do was become the first person in history to complete a solo, so completely alone, unsupported, which means no resupplies of food or fuel. So you have to carry everything with you from your drop-off point to the end, uh, which makes it very heavy. My sled was 375 pounds, uh, mostly full uh, of food. And like I said, a little bit of white gas to be able to melt snow and turn it into water um, and very minimal gear because to, to I mean, still 375 pounds. Uh, I could tell you a whole story. I could barely pull the thing when it started. Um human powered. So, you know, no, no dogs or people have done some amazing crossings of the continent using kites to propel them. Um, but my goal was kind of the most pure mono mono way, just me, my sled, uh, pulling, you know, on foot, you know, wearing skis, but just to, to add, um, not like you're skiing, just to add some, uh, stability over the, the snow. Um, that's called man hauling. And so nobody in history had ever completed that crossing over the landmass of Antarctica people had tried in the past, you know, a few years before I went, a guy named Henry Worsley tried a very similar crossing and he was out there for 71 days, very experienced British explorer. He's actually the grand nephew, I believe of Ernest Shackleton or one of the guys from Ernest Shackleton's crew, excuse me. And he made it 71 days, a hundred miles from the finish line of the thing. And actually we got a bacterial infection and ultimately died. You know, another guy attempted the crossing a couple years after that, the year before I tried, and he made it very experienced British explorer, made it 54 days into it and ultimately ran so low on supplies and food that he had to be called to be evacuated. So, you know, people have basically started to say, this crossing is impossible. People have tried it. The math just doesn't add up. You can't literally carry enough food with you. If you pack your sled with a thousand pounds of food, obviously you can't pull it. If you don't bring enough food, you're going to run out and you're going to get sick and die or you know, any number of things can happen. And so people said it was impossible. And my wife and I, we, lo we love to name the projects that I do, You know, kind of brand them, but just kind of fun for us. And so we decided to call this project The Impossible First, which is also uh, the name of my New York Times bestselling book, The Impossible First. Um, 
But it wasn't because we were like, oh, people say it's impossible in some cocky way of saying like, oh, but I'm going to prove them wrong. It was literally saying this actually might be impossible. However, I'm willing to try my very best. I'm willing to go out there. And if I fail in 50 days, I still believe there's value in trying something this hard because I'm going to learn something from it. I'm going to grow something from it. I'm going to confront those one days and have those 10 days all around it. Of course, I was hoping to complete it and be successful. And you know, ultimately, I was. But it was far from a gimme. Um, and so the impossible first, that idea is bounded upon like, hey, look, certain things might seem impossible in certain moments, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try you shouldn't take those first steps and engage that process which is exactly what we did out there man like a worthy adversary like when you were going through all these different you know periods of adversity like did you ever think hey this is going to make a great story one day or are you just trying to make it through no i mean look it's funny you know throughout the entire crossing you know you know, Jen and I have, you know, marketed and branded to some level our projects. And, you know, we, we do these things where we, we have students, you know, tapped in for our nonprofits. We've had millions of students involved in that. And so it's, you know, we're doing outreach and things like that. But once I go into them, I'm not like, oh, wow, who's covering this story or whatnot. And so Jenna had kept me like very insulated from all of that. You know, ultimately, this expedition, which I didn't know at the time, not until I was back in the United States, um, had garnered two billion media impressions. It was the most, you know, widely covered expedition in modern history. And so, you know, kind of a funny tangent story to that was I I finally, after Lou finished, and then it took a week or so to get picked up from where we were back to this other base in Antarctica and ultimately back to the southern tip of South America to Punta Arenas. And Jenna had flown down to meet me there. And I I rush off the plane. I'm so excited to see her and, you know, jump into each other's arms. It's an incredible reunion. And one of the first things I said to her was like, I'm so excited we get to go home tomorrow, sleep in our own bed. She'd actually got a puppy um, when we were out there. I can't wait to meet our new puppy, you know, all these things. And she was like, yeah, about that. And I was like, what? And she was like, we're not flying to Portland tomorrow. We're flying to New York City and you're going live on the Today Show like tomorrow morning, Um, which again, like humbled, honored, grateful for, you know, all the interest, all the exposure. It's been a beautiful and humbling thing. But I've been alone in Antarctica for two months, not talking to anyone. It's completely insulated from this. She's like, you're flying to Manhattan. You're going to be on live television tomorrow. I was like, wait, what? You know, it was a total mind warp, uh, so to speak. But, um, But yeah, you know, look, I think that I love storytelling, you know, And I think that every single person has a beautiful story to tell. And I think as humans, um, we gain inspiration from other people's stories. And, you know, I love sharing my story for that reason, but I love consuming. I love listening to stories. I love listening to other podcasts, movies, books. Uh, You know, I'm an avid reader um, for that reason, because I believe all of us in this crazy thing we call life are experiencing it. And when we share those stories, there's a ripple effect of positivity um, that happens from being inspiration and ultimately lifted up um, by a community of folks uh, that share their stories. And so I don't necessarily do it, quote unquote, for the story. But, uh, you know, I've been humbled with how many people, you know, want to hear me share the story and the success of the book and other projects that I've had. But uh, like I said, humbled by it all, but uh, certainly is not the, uh, the driving force uh, to create a story, so to speak, or to manufacture one just to live fully in my truth and and from that i suppose uh spawned uh, at least my authentic story of my experience and what i've taken from it i want to give a huge thank you to every single guest who's joined me over the past several months on the game-changing attorney podcast and i want to thank you yes you for subscribing to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader 
You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with behavioral scientist, Wharton professor, and best-selling author of How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, Dr. Katie Milkman. There's a huge influence that social forces play on our ability to achieve our goals. The people who we surround ourselves with show us what's possible. Um, They give us hints as to what uh, we can do to achieve. If you can form a group of people with similar goals, whether it's people who want to run a marathon or people who have similar business objectives, spending time with those people, learning their tactics. Uh, I often talk about the power of forming an advice club can be a huge asset. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 oh